James is a short book, but it packs a big punch. And James, um, like all scripture, is not just meant to make us feel comfortable. I think most of the conversations, if you read them in the Gospels, where Jesus was talking to people, the people that agreed with him, he made them feel uncomfortable. The people that disagreed with him, he made them feel uncomfortable. And actually, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says, Come, let us join together. Don't forsake the fellowship of the brethren. Because when we fellowship together, one of the goals and one of the reasons we get together is to provoke one another to love and good works. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't like being provoked. When I think about somebody provoking somebody, I think about a dog on a chain and somebody running up and kicking it and running away and not expecting to get bitten. That's what I think about provoking. And yet the Holy Spirit is always provoking us. He's poking us. We don't all fully understand God yet. We have received salvation, many of us, most of us, but in the same way, God is always provoking us to get us to question what we believe versus what he's teaching. And he does that so we will be continually conformed and transformed into the image of Christ. And so James was the half-brother of Jesus. James didn't believe in Jesus until he saw Jesus resurrected. He probably was aggravated every time Jesus wouldn't join in on the family-sibling rivalry. You know, how would you like to have a sibling that never actually did anything wrong? That would be annoying. And Jesus was probably annoying in that way. And so, uh, but at the same time, he was provoking them to see that he wasn't like all other people. So in James, we've already read about um, some things that have to do with today's passage. In James chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, this is what James writes. He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. What he means is don't treat others differently than each other. Treat everybody the same. God treats us all the same. We're all on a level playing field. So he says, you as Christians ought to treat each other with respect and dignity. Don't treat one above the other because of how much money he has in his bank account or how many friends he has. He says, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? In other words, the people that you treat so well aren't they also the ones that oppress you? And so that passage is going to lead us into today's study in, Luke, in James chapter 5, because in James chapter 5, he says, come now, you rich. He just talked about the rich who have a tendency to oppress the poor. The rich are typically the ones that take the poor to court, and yet the poor people can never fight against them because they don't have the means to get a lawyer. They just basically have to lay down and take it. And so my point is, is that Jesus is teaching that riches are not necessarily a bad thing, but we can unfortunately use them for the wrong things. We can use our power, we can use our possessions in order to lord it over those who 
are poor, those who are weak. And so Jesus teaches some kingdom priorities in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And I'll tie this all in, I promise. In Luke chapter 12, verse 16, or Luke chapter 12, verse 13, Last week, we talked about the parable of the rich man, the foolish rich man. This was a man who had a bumper crop that year. He had produced more crops than normal. And then, so Jesus in verse 16 says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I will store up all my crops and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God calls him a fool. He says, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he, meaning a foolish man, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So we read that last week. But then he continues in verse 22, and he says, Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, this is the same thing he taught in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Don't worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Now, I want you to think about this. Life is more than food. Life is more than clothing. Maybe in our day and age, but life is more than the weather. Most Sunday mornings, I start talking to you guys by mentioning the weather. Something we all have in common, right? But if you pay attention to the conversations you have with people, especially people you don't have much in common with, what are some things we have in common with everybody? Food and clothing. The people that I don't agree with anything they believe, we can agree on the foods that we like. So we spend the bulk of our time talking with people about what we're going to eat, or maybe what we're going to wear. And so the reality is that those things aren't bad. We need clothes, uh, and I need clothes more than some of you do. You know, if we like to cover ourselves up because we can feel ashamed. But the reality is that sometimes we talk about all these things, and life is actually not about food and clothing. Jesus just said that. Life is not about food and clothing. It's about more. He says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Worrying actually doesn't make you live longer. As a matter of fact, recent studies show that anxiety and worry make you live less. And yet many of us are trying to add to our lives worrying about details in order to make us live longer. He says, if you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies. Consider flowers. We see a lot of them right now, right? We went hiking yesterday. They're everywhere. They're on the trees. They're on the ground. They're absolutely beautiful. And yet what he says, when you consider the lilies and how they grow, they don't toil, they don't spin, Yet I say to you, even Solomon, the wisest and richest king of all time, in all of his glory was not arrayed as beautifully as these flowers. 
If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind, he says, for all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your father knows that you need these things. He says, but seek the kingdom of God and all these shall be taken care of for you. So what do we spend the bulk of our time worrying about? Are we going to have enough food? Are my kids going to have clothes? And, and those aren't bad things. It's literally snowing. I have to stop and recognize that. What are we going to do if it snows? You know, <laughs> going to bring it back in. We spend the bulk of our time thinking about that. And yet I, I was thinking about this verse this week. And I, th- I looked around at the things that I possess, the people that God's brought into my life, the job that I have, the food that was on our table. And when I really stopped thinking about, stopped and thought about it, I, at one point in my life, the Lord focused Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which is also another passage that says the exact same thing. And everybody kept telling me before I recognized it, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness on your behalf, if you'll seek his kingdom first, you'll focus on what he wants you to do, he'll take care of the rest. And yet we're so unlikely to take advantage of that promise. But as I looked around in my life this week, I, there was a time where all the time God was telling me to do things and I would go do them, but I'm, in my flesh I was always thinking, but what, when am I going to have time for me? When am I going to have, okay, God, I'm serving the youth, and I was serving the youth at that time, but when am I going to meet a spouse? I don't have time to go out. My life was completely consumed with what God was giving me to do, and I was so focused on the thing that I thought that would make me happy, and yet when I focused myself on what God gave me to do, guess what happened? He took care of the rest. I didn't have time to look for a house when we moved down here. I was working and serving and taking care of things at the other church, and, and, and yet when I focused on what God gave me to do, when I was at work, I worked. When I was at church, I did church stuff. When I was supposed to be studying, I'd study. And, and I've grown in that, and I've become more disciplined. But as I would allow God to take my time, he actually took care of the rest. If you'd have told me 10 years ago I could continue to keep my nose on what God had for me to do, and God would provide me a wife, I wouldn't have believed it. No, no, i got to peruse, and i got to look, and i got to date, and i got to go and... and No, I just needed to be where God wanted me to be, and then he would bring the right woman alongside me while I was doing what he told me to do. And the same is true for other things. When we moved down here, one of the things that I found out is that um, my job was being moved to St. Louis. And at the time, I was so stressed out, I was calling my wife, and I was literally crying. She'll tell you that. I was crying. I'd had that job for eight years. It was my first job out of college. I kind of had trusted in it. And so the Lord took it from me, but he had better. And so I said, what are we going to do? And my wife goes, pray. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the godly response. Okay, pray instead of complain. Pray instead of cry. Okay, all right. So we prayed, and guess what happened? Three weeks later, I had a job offer in the same town, using my same degree. I had to take a little bit of a pay cut, but here we are. We're doing good. We're paying off our debt. 
All the things that people stress out about, God has taken care of. And it's not because I stay up at night thinking about it, stressing. Ask my wife. Head hits the pillow, I gone. I'm asleep. I, you know, I, I can be a worrier, but not at night anyway. So, so we need to be careful that our priority is actually not all the peripheries. That our priority is seeking the source. And not just because he got stuff to give us, but because he loves us. And so in Luke chapter 16, if you turn a couple chapters over in Luke, we have this story about a rich man and Lazarus. It says there in verse 19, there, were, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Now, when do you desire crumbs? Do any of us go up to the McDonald's and go, I'll take the number 17, the crumbs with the little extra crumbs on the side? No, we want meat. We want something that's, we want carbs. We want something heavy. We want to fill our belly. This man desired crumbs. And I would submit to you it's because he had nothing else. He desired crumbs because he was starving. The other day I was at Save-A-Lot and I saw this bottle and it said, what was that? Mayo Chup. Mayo Chup. And I texted it to my wife because I hate mayo. And you mix it with ketchup, I'm even more out. It looked gross. And uh, I said, I would do anything. I would, she's, I forget how it went. But, oh, I was fasting for a doctor's appointment. Right. Yeah. And I said, apparently I'm not that hungry. I will not eat mayo chip sandwich. So that was the point. I was fasting for a doctor appointment. And, uh, and, and you know, it's funny what you'll eat when you're hungry and what you still won't eat when you're not really that hungry. And the reality is I wasn't that hungry. This man wants crumbs. He desires crumbs like you and I desire bacon, you know, or, or whatever it is your favorite food. And so he desires crumbs. Maybe I dwelled on that too long. So uh, <laughs> desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So we won't go into this today, but there was a place before Christ where people went in the Jewish faith before they were taken out of captivity, a waiting place until the the Messiah would come and open up the gates of heaven, essentially. But verse 24 says, Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. So apparently Lazarus and Abraham were in the same spot. They could hear this man crying out and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and just cool my tongue. So look at the contrast. This man in his life was desiring crumbs, and this other man who was rich is in torment, and he's not asking for a drink of water. He's not asking for a bucket of water. He says, dip your finger and then touch my tongue. Anything. Just even the least of just some relief. And so 
Verse 25, but Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, which he was before, and you are now tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So then the man responds and says, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So maybe I can't receive relief, but can you please send Lazarus to go and warn my brothers? Okay, I can't get out of my fix. My eternity is sealed, but can you help those I've left behind? All of a sudden, he's becoming selfless. All of a sudden, he's realizing and having perspective on what life's about. And so as he does, he has a desire to intercede for his family. And in verse 29, Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And so the man responded and said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If someone raises from the dead, maybe they'll repent. Now, is this the same Lazarus that Jesus called out of the grave? I don't know. There seems to be a lot of parallels here. But he says here, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and listen to the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one, even if someone rises from the dead. And we know that that's true. That if they won't listen to the law of God, and they, they definitely won't listen to the, the resurrected Son of God. And we know that to be true. Otherwise, this place would be overflowing with people because they'd all be coming to the source of life. And so I give that to you because it seems like there's better perspective for this man who's in torment, but it's too late. And yet God's taught these things to us before we die. So on the next slide, um, my clicker's not working. James chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. He's warning us, and he's warning the rich of this world, just like he was warning the rich man. He says, weep and howl, mourn. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. And look at this. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. So, I don't care who you are and how much money you have, you can heap up treasure, but ultimately, no matter how good the treasure is, maybe it's a Maserati, (laughs) maybe it's the truck that's jacked up 17 feet and has got 30-inch rims, maybe it's literally just a stockpile of gold, maybe it's the best house in our community. You might think, man, I'd love to have that. The reality is, all of those things, the greatest of the things, the most protected things, the best insured things, the reality is they will all break down over time. The nicest house has to be taken care of. The nicest car has to be maintained. The trash heap becomes a witness against the heaper. We trust in uncertain riches, but those things can all be taken from us. And in James chapter 3, verse 16, look at this. He's already written to us. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. 
Envy and self-seeking, this desire to become rich, this desire to, to have power, to, this desire to look good, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. They seem like they can fulfill our needs, and yet what we find out is that those things that we seek after, we save for, we spend our whole life pining for. I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever wanted something bad enough to actually save for it, and you just get all worked up, and then you buy the thing, and then you start using it, and you go, this is good, but maybe there's something else that'll make me happy, because that thing doesn't even make you happy either. And so um, in James chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, he says, "'Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires that pleasure for pleasure that war in your members?' You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. True joy is found when you have a need and you ask someone greater than you for it and they give it to you and then there's thankfulness. And so the desire to obtain makes us overlook the needs of others. And that's what we're looking at this morning. The problem is not that they have things, by the way. Many of us kind of demonize people that have more than we do. We have to be careful of that. Because having stuff doesn't mean that you're evil. doesn't mean that you obtained it wickedly. It doesn't even mean that you're corrupted and sinning. But here's the problem. With this particular group that he's talking about, it says there in verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they cry out. And the cries of those who reaped your fields Reach the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. So wages kept back by fraud. The people that James is writing about are the rich people of that day that apparently had become rich not by working hard, not by saving, not by being wise, but they had become rich by not paying the people that were working for them. Oh yeah, I'll pay you, don't worry. And then they'd wait another week. And in the meantime, those people were working many times for food. They were working so that they could save and, and basically reap a bunch of stuff. They would get to go home with some of the stuff that they had pulled from the fields and make their own bread. And so they were withholding their wages from them and so these people that were working from them were being oppressed. They had to work all day and then they had nothing to eat to show for it. They didn't have any food to bring home to their families. And I said to you already, riches are not bad. Riches are actually the, the resources that God's given us to be stewards over. But look at how they're using the riches that they're heaping up by fraudulently stealing from their workers. They're living in luxury. Now luxury, the word actually means extravagant living. It's not like they were trying to get rich so they could help the poor. They were getting rich so they could have more stuff, so they could build their trash heap from the heavenly perspective. And then they also, they were hoarding. They were hoarding. They had garages full of toys. They had houses full of stuff. And yet there were people, just like in Lazarus Day, sitting outside of the gate just wanting crumbs. Just wanting crumbs. So he says, rich, weep, howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. So what I see from this is a people that are within the church that are being oppressed 
by those that are also in the church and are not treating them fairly. And so he says there, what's the godly response to those who oppress you, by the way? Maybe you don't feel like you get paid enough. Maybe you feel like, you know, the person that you work for doesn't pay you enough. Maybe um, somebody's promised to pay you back for something and they never did, and you really need it. It's not like you got extra. The godly response to being oppressed in any way is to cry out. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That word Sabaoth, I'm probably saying it wrong, means the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, we sing it. So complaining is not the answer. Trusting the Lord is the answer. And actually going, Lord, these people are treating me unfairly. Would you please save? Would you please deliver? The truly oppressed do not typically have the resources to fight against their oppressors anyway. So maybe you got somebody that's treated you unfairly. They've taken advantage of you. First of all, Jesus was taken advantage of. He loved people that didn't care about him. He gave resources to people that wanted really nothing to do with what he was teaching. Think about the feeding of the 5,000. He taught 5,000 people, and then afterwards he had compassion on them. They were hungry. But there was a group in that group that actually was only following him because he kept feeding them. Well, what if somebody takes, takes advantage of me? Let them. Let them. God's the one supplying the food anyway. And so, uh, look at this in verse 6. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. Those who are oftentimes condemned and murdered, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was not helping that man at all, even though he had plenty, right? And by not helping him, even though he had the means to do so, he was condemning him. We don't see why Lazarus died, but I would submit to you that if he was desiring crumbs, he was probably starving to death. He probably died because of lack of nourishment. And so um, he says he does not fight you because he he lacked nourishment. But by not taking care of those who need taking care of, and God has a real true heart for widows and orphans, we're actually condemning them to continue in oppression. And so... um, that made me think of where we've been reading in Bible study together this week because there was a time in Israel's history where they were oppressed by their enemies. Joseph, being the youngest of 12 sons, was sold into slavery. He was sent to a place where he was made a slave, a servant. And then eventually, because of his ability to interpret dreams, he was able to become the second of all over Egypt and become a steward over the riches. Did that make Joseph evil? No. But Joseph brought his whole family. There were 70 relatives he brought in. They started to live in Egypt during a time of famine. And during that time, it says in Exodus chapter 1, there are the name, in verse 8, during that time, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. 
And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more that the children of Israel multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. They made them do mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So they were oppressing them. They were making them serve, but they were making them work long hours. And then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives and even told them this. Um, He said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then they then she shall live. So he even said, hey, we need to make them weak, so kill the men. Kill them at birth. We won't have to deal with them. You talk about oppression. That's oppression. But the whole purpose was to keep them quiet, to keep them under the the thumb of Pharaoh. And so this is God's people. Doesn't God care? Why is God allowing this to happen? Well, we find out in Exodus chapter 2, verse 25. In the meantime, in chapter 2, we find out that God's already providing a deliverer for them before they even cry out for one. That, I love that about the Lord. He knows our needs before we have them. But in verse 23, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage And they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So if you have bondage in your life, if you are being oppressed in some way, maybe you're being oppressed by your own sins. You're in bondage. You're in slavery to your sins. Cry out to the Lord. He is sending a deliverer. And so he says there, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his promise with Abraham and with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and he acknowledged them. So if you're oppressed spiritually, practically, in your work, in relationships with others, tell the Lord about it. Stop complaining to each other. Many times we can't help each other. Now, that doesn't mean you can't ask for prayer. That doesn't mean you can't lean on each other. But the first place we ought to go is to the Lord. And so, He's the deliverer. And what we find out is that he, in chapter 2, Moses is born. God keeps him alive miraculously. His mom puts him in an ark on the river Nile where they were supposed to throw the children to kill them. And he makes him the second in the household, the heir to the kingdom of Egypt. And then Moses grows up basically in the nicest place you could grow up. And then at one point, he sees Hebrews being oppressed by the Egyptians. He kills an Egyptian, and then Pharaoh finds out about it. Moses gets scared, and he runs to the desert. So this deliverer that God's providing for these people has to go and be prepared to be a deliverer. He goes out to the wilderness, the desert, essentially, in Midian. In the meantime, the people start crying out for God to save them, and he is going to save them. But they have to wait 40 years of slavery to be saved. 40 years. Now think about that. As God's people, it's not getting better for us. It's getting harder. God sent a deliverer to deal with our sin. And yet he's going to send him a second time 
to deliver us from this evil world. The children of Israel had to wait 40 years. How much more do we have to wait? Cry out for the deliverer to come. He's going to come. He's going to deliver us. But in the meantime, we need to be patient. And in James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10, James writes this. If you're dealing with oppression, he says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up in due time. So how do we respond to oppressors? We pray. Let's look at how Jesus responded to oppressors. We're not doing this just basically because we're good. We're following the example of our Savior. At the time that Jesus was born, Israel was oppressed on every side. This is just a few. The Roman government had taken away their ability to rule themselves as a nation. They, they were heavily taxing everyone, and they had taken away their right to govern themselves. They weren't even allowed to exhibit corporal, corporate pun, punishment. They weren't able to put evildoers to death like God gave them in the law. They were oppressed by the religious elite. They were even oppressed by people that were supposed to be leaders in their religion. They turned the Jewish religion into a money-making venture. If they were going to go into the temple, they had to bring a sacrifice. The sacrifice oftentimes would be rejected. They would have to exchange their money for temple money, and then the, the scales were weighted, so it was an unfair balance. So they'd get ripped off there, and then the only place that they could buy an animal to sacrifice was from this group that was run essentially by the religious leaders, and they had to, it, was, it, was a, it was a monopoly. They had to pay high prices to buy it. It's like when you go to a baseball game and buy a soda. Where else are you going to go? Nine bucks. It's a soda. Nine bucks. And we pay it because we have no option. But people are going to the house of the Lord they're getting ripped off so they can go worship. And so Jesus, when he shows up in the temple, starts overturning tables. That's why he's mad. These people were supposed to be a bridge to help these people worship, and they became a stumbling block. They became deceivers. They became extortioners. And then, on top of that, the tax collectors from their own people. They were collecting taxes for Rome. They were turncoats. But they would also take a little extra and able to get paid themselves. If they wanted to get paid well, they'd say, uh, it says here you owe, scratch, add a little. And then they would add a number to it, and that's what they would put in their pockets as their wages. They were ripping the people off. So Jesus, how do you think Jesus responded? He heard their cries, and in Luke chapter 4, he reads from Isaiah, which says this, verse 18 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So who are the oppressed? Who are the oppressed? <laughs> he shows us how to deal with oppressors. 
But before we read this, I want to point out something that kind of got me this morning. Jesus loves those who are oppressed. He's promised to deliver them. But do you know that Jesus also loves those who oppress the oppressed? They're oppressed too. The rich, the fraudulent, the extortioner, God loves them. Jesus died for them too. They're not oppressed by other people. You know who they're oppressed by? Their own wicked desires, sin. And what's funny is they're also oppressed by Satan. So what does Jesus do in response to our oppression? He delivers the oppressed. But do you know that Jesus delivers our oppressors too, if they're willing to come and repent? Our greatest oppressor is our flesh, just like the oppressors that oppress us. So the word Hosanna means save now, please. I beg you to save. So turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Apparently I was in Luke this week. Luke chapter 19. Verse 1. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, he calls him by name, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he quickly made haste, came down, received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I will restore to them fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, in the context of this passage, Matthew, Levi, is what he was called. Levi was supposed to be a leader in the house of God, a Levite, a servant. And yet he had turned his back on his own people to serve Rome, to collect taxes, and then it looks like here he's repenting of <laughs> taking more than he was due. He was stealing from his own people. He was hated. This isn't somebody that they were like, oh, he works for the IRS, he's the man. This was somebody like, he took more than he was due, and he already had plenty. He was robbing me, legally. They hated him. They wanted, many of them, I guarantee, wanted him dead. And Jesus is just going to come in and forgive him? How dare he? Don't they know what he's done to us? Doesn't Jesus know what he's done to us? And yet what Jesus says is, salvation has come to this house. I've come and sought someone who is lost, someone who is wandering. And that's what I came to do. So, we also must love our enemies. And I can't see the bottom there. 
Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43. Jesus, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on those who are just and those who are unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than anybody else? Do not even the tax collectors do so? This was insulting to them to call them tax collectors and compare them to that way. Therefore, he says, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. To love your enemies, to pray for those who use you, not just those you can't stand, but those who rip you off, those who speak unwell of you, those who curse you behind your back or to your face. Pray for them, love them, do them good, bless them. Pour into them. Do all you can to make them better. That's hard. That, that's impossible. I mean, if you can, maybe there's somebody in your life right now you can think of that's just like you can't stand and they have wronged you and you could absolutely righteously say, I don't want anything to do with them. Jesus didn't do that to you. Jesus didn't do that to me. And not only that, but when we hold back blessing them, we're actually only hurting ourselves. And so, um, back in James, in verse 7, we've got to be careful that we who have been oppressed don't become oppressors, that we don't withhold the, the love of God from those who He came to seek and to save the lost. And in verse 7, he says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also, he says, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. When Jesus comes, how do you want him to find you? Do you want him to find you doing what he did, or do you want to withhold that? Don't become an oppressor. So, Father, um, it's heavy. 